is Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. So, folks, welcome to part one of three of our lead up to the legislature series. So, what folks can expect is that for this episode and the next two, we're going to be taking a bit of a different approach to the topics we cover. For each episode, we will chat with government, opposition, and third party, respectively, on three policy priorities to expect from them in the upcoming sitting of the legislature, of course, starting Thursday, February 25th. Now, this upcoming sitting is historical and exciting for a number of reasons, because this is the first time there will be no evening sitting hours um, in the Legislative Assembly. It's going to be synchronized with the public school branches March break. And it's, of course, where the operational budget 2021-2022 will be presented. Now, today, we're going to be covering four policy themes. When we reached out to each of the parties, we asked them to submit three policy priorities they would like us to discuss and that Islanders can expect in the upcoming opening of the legislature. So with the guests that we're talking to today, the first policy priority that they will be focusing on is basic income guarantee. Now, for listeners, this is a topic we've covered previously in episode three, of course, with Sean Casey, but this is particularly relevant for the provincial jurisdictional policy as in July 2019, the Special Committee on Poverty and PEI was struck and then, of course, provided their final report in November 2020 on a costed version of basic income guarantee on PEI. Of course, these recommendations were adopted and and this received royal assent in December of 2020. We are currently waiting action from both the provincial government and the federal government on steps moving forward on this policy. Mm-hmm. The second policy theme we're going to be looking at today pertains to housing and more specifically the rental market. We'll be looking at the Residential Tenancy Act, which is a draft bill that is meant to replace the existing Rental of Residential Property Act. Now, this bill was supposed to uh, be presented at the floor of the Legislative Assembly last year, but because of COVID-19, has been pushed back. As a result, this bill uh, has been in the public consultation phase for the past year, and we know that the big question pertaining to this is, when is it coming to the floor, and what will it look like after these public consultations? The third policy priority that folks can expect is climate action on PEI. So first we look at the status of the Climate Change Action Plan. It was first introduced in 2018, and this is a five-year multi-stage plan that is until 2023. So we've asked questions on areas such as sustainable transit and community initiatives into climate, such as the recent round of funding opportunities. And finally, the fourth topic that we'll be covering is mental health. We'll be talking about the Mental Health Emergency Response Line that is being launched by the government in March of 2021, as well as addressing the closing down of the QEH Ward 9 Psychiatric Unit from March to November 2020. With us today is former Eastern Graphic journalist, former drinker of Alexander Keith's beer, but has since crossed the floor to local craft beer, is one quarter of the Foreteller Storytelling Group, author and the 33rd Premier of Prince Edward Island, the Honorable Dennis King. Well, Premier, thank you again so much for being with us today. And we have to start with a very important question. How are you? 
Well, <laughs> well uh, thank you both. It's a great honor to be here. I, I think overall I'm, I'm doing well. Um, uh, I have probably the early February blahs. I'm, I'm tired of being caged up as we have been for so long, but I think overall I'm doing well. I'm very fortunate that uh, my family are doing well. Uh, both of our youngest kids are in school and uh, doing well, so have a lot to be grateful for. And uh, one of the things I'm grateful for is to have a chance to chat with uh, both of you today on the podcast. So uh, thanks for asking. Oh, well, it's so wonderful to have you, Premier, and, and thank you once again for agreeing. Um, as listeners know, next week is the opening of the provincial legislature. So for this episode, we will be discussing a number of different policy priorities. So we'll jump into the first one. So speaking of the Legislative Assembly, <laughs> on November 27, 2020, Special Committee on Poverty and PEI presented the report, Recommendations in Response to Motion Number 36, Creation of a Special Committee of the Legislative Assembly on Poverty and PEI. Very long title, but effective nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> this report was adopted, of course, in the Legislative Assembly on December 1st, 2020. And one specific recommendation was number four, which states, and I quote, that the government of Prince Edward Island begin immediate negotiations with the government of Canada and the, the development of an implementation of a basic income guarantee program for Prince Edward Island. Now, this report concluded that the estimated gross cost of the program is $318 million, an estimated net cost of $259 million, and a total estimated savings of $58 million. Now, with that, Premier, what is your government's official policy stance on basic income guarantee? Uh, well, uh, th thanks for the question. It, it, it is a long but important title uh, of that report, and a lot of good work uh, has come out of that standing committee and others. So uh, uh, the official policy that we have, and I believe that we've had from the very beginning, is that I think this is something that we need to do uh, for, for Islanders. I think uh, the challenge has always been that uh, with the price tag that that may have caused some sticker shock for some people when the mm -hmm. when the committee talked about the, the, the finished number uh, of a basic income guarantee plan here in PEI. But I, I do think that uh, this is something that can help uh, increase the level of success for Islanders across the board. I, I think of it also... Uh, a lot of people have asked me as a progressive conservative why I would be supporting what they might suggest as, as, a, as a social program. But I, I do think there's also there's many components to what a basic income guarantee can do here in the province. Uh, uh, and there, there is a social component to it. I think there's a business component as well. Well, I think anytime you put more money into the pockets of Islanders, particularly those who are at the lower end of the scale, that money goes in directly into the local economy more so than it would at the top, for example. This isn't money going to offshore bank accounts or, or, or boats or yachts or properties at a province. This is money that is spent locally. And I think that is an important uh, uh, measurement that people sometimes are forgetting, to be honest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and uh, you know, I think we, we've heard uh, uh, recently from the uh, Chamber of Commerce in Charlottetown, for example, who need more information and are concerned that uh, this might 
take more people out of the labor force. And then, uh, look, those are important questions. That's a big concern when we have already uh, a labor force that is, it, it is diminished here in the province, and we need to do more with that. But, but at the same time, I think we need to educate Islanders a little bit more on what exactly a basic income is uh, what a basic income guarantee in PEI would look like, who it would be targeted uh, and who it would help. Uh, and look at this not so much as a competitive, uh, this isn't business against social, this isn't someone trying to scam the system. At its very root, this is about giving people dignity, this is about giving people the ability uh, to spend money uh, and to have a level of life that we all should aspire to enjoy. And so I I'm supportive of it. And uh, we've written the prime minister and we've asked him to dedicate some people from the federal government to work with people within the provincial government to begin the bones of what a basic income in PEI would and could look like. Now, that doesn't have a commitment with it from the feds yet, but that's a, I think it's an important step and I hope they respond uh, accordingly and, and quickly. Mm -hmm. oh, that's fabulous. Thank you, Premier. And, and I think you're right, those uh, initial steps are really important to to get this going. Yeah. And um, as you had mentioned, the Chamber of Commerce uh, was featured on Island Morning this morning, uh, and they were speaking about um, looking for further information pertaining to um, this particular policy area. Um, and, and some of the concerns around, as you said, you know, how does this impact uh, employment as well as uh, looking for further information. However, as we know, uh, the committee was intact for a year and a half, uh, originally set for that one year and then extended by six months, of course, to uh, provide additional time to ensure they could do that research. Uh, 32 individual presentations, 15 public meetings. Do you feel as though uh, folks such as the Chamber of Commerce that perhaps are, are critical of policies such as guaranteed basic income have brought up any new considerations that the special committee had not discovered in their consultations? Uh, and as well, further to that, how do you feel this may affect uh, government stance on basic income? Well, I think the issues that they raise, whether or not they have been previously raised or discussed, uh, I guess I'll leave that for uh, for others to determine. I, I think the issues they raise are not unimportant, and, and they certainly need to be uh, better understood, which I think is a reason why we need to do a little bit more explanation and, and education of what exactly a basic income guarantee is. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I kind of look at it from this perspective quite personally, is that I don't think any parent who has a baby that is born looks at that baby and says, I want you to be less. I think mm -hmm. we all want mm -hmm. our kids to aspire to be great. We all want them to have the best chance, the best start, and the best opportunity to, to live a, a great and productive life. Uh, what we have been seeing for decades now is that your level of income has a direct role and impact in that. So as a responsible society, what can we be doing to help uh, remove some of those barriers, to remove some of those limitations? Uh, and, and so that's the perspective I look at. I know we have a labor force now that is challenged. We need more individuals here, and we have to continue to work on that. But quite honestly, the discussion we need to be having with our business community and with so many others is that, uh, you know, we have too many people that are now getting on the lower end of the income scale. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't serve our province well either. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, all of the things like a basic income, uh, a livable income, uh, you know, uh, looking at the minimum wage, all of these things, I think we need to have a grown up discussion about and that's not to dismiss <laughs> anybody's concern mm-hmm. at all. I think we have to take all of these concerns, but I do think it will impact business in a positive way. Mm-hmm. If more and more islanders, particularly at the lower end of the pay scale, have more money in their pockets to spend locally. I think that will be a positive and it might actually help as we work through this labor crunch uh, that we have, uh, it might actually help uh, some business in a way. So I don't, I don't think anyone should just be immediately opposed to this discussion uh, at all. I think it, it's a, it's a complicated discussion for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's worrisome to some because uh, it's, it's drastically different than, than what we've been doing. But if you look at the CERB, for example, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the CERB uh, has been uh, a blessing to this province in terms of the money that it's been able to generate, particularly at a time when some of our major sectors have been impacted. So uh, I hope we can have a, a good, serious discussion about it. I, I really do. And I, I'm committed to doing something. I mean, if you look uh, last December, uh, I, I worked with Hannah Bell from the official opposition and we made the, uh, what was at that time a record in invest in uh, the social assistance allowance, for example, mm-hmm. because I think we have to be honest with ourselves that we're not doing a good enough job there and we have to be open to looking at how we can do it better. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And you put that in such a beautiful way as well that, you know, we want things to be easier <laughs> for those who come after us. And that's something that we've also brought forward a number of times. And it's, I think it's really reassuring in a way to hear you still be such so much in favor for basic income and what it can do, you know, for the island. Now you've touched on this a little bit already when we were speaking about initial negotiations or initial conversations with the federal government, where you've mentioned you've already spoken with the prime minister about maybe having some folks to look at basic income specifically on PEI. We know that a lot of sev- of senators on PEI, such as Senator Brian Fen- Francis, Diane Griffin, and Mike Duffy, as well as MPs Wayne Easter and MP Sean Casey who was on this podcast actually on episode three to talk about basic income. All these folks are already in favor of a basic income on PEI. So just looking at timelines, you know, what do you think the timeline looks like a little bit for these negotiations as well as for potentially finalizing, you know, having a final decision on basic income on the island? Well, I think one of the things that might help the timeline or or quicken the timeline is what seems to be at the national level uh, potential that we're in an election year in 2021, uh, whether it's spring, summer, or fall, I guess, to be determined. So uh, I guess I I look at it from the perspective that the the current government uh, has an interest uh, within a lot of the progressives within their party to look at issues such as this in, in a bigger way. Uh, I think the federal government as an operational body looks at this and goes, wow, this is such a big issue. I don't know where to start. So let's not even begin to touch it. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think what I found the success that we've had in implementing some programs here at the provincial level, I try to start the discussion with bureaucrats and politicians and others by saying, if we forget about money and we forget about the work, if we were going to set up this program, how would it need to work? Mm-hmm. And that's the conversation I'd like to have with the federal government. I don't need you to commit and say, we're going to do this on X and X, uh, such a date. Mm-hmm. I would like you to come to the table and say, if we were to do this, how would it work? Mm-hmm. And I think by 
sort of kickstarting that conversation, I think we then begin to change the mindset within some of the bureaucrats who might say, you know what, okay, this might be a big national project, but if we were to start a national pilot in, in PEI, for example, uh, maybe we can learn from this along the way. And as we look to implement this across the country, uh, maybe this is the best way to go. So I would like to see a commitment from the federal government to do that. I'm a realist also. I don't think we're going to see the federal government come out and say, we're having a basic income guarantee across Canada that's going to start in 2022. But I think if, if the prime minister wanted to take any political advice, whether it's good or bad for me, <laughs> I, would, I would think a good piece of advice for, for him would be, this would serve you well with the progressives in your party if you were to seriously look at how a program could be implemented in a jurisdiction such as PEI. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting you you bring that up because when we did have the opportunity to speak with MP Sean Casey, uh, he also was saying, you know, PEI is, and we say this all the time, such a unique jurisdiction. And if this is something the federal government would like to look at, um, it is such an awesome opportunity based on the size, based on the cost, based on uh, just already the appetite here. So definitely something that um, most certainly has been, I think, said before and will continue to be said that PEI is, is an awesome opportunity to look at. Further to that, though, uh, as we know, this is, of course, not going to happen tomorrow, basic income. Uh, we, we do have to speak with the federal government and negotiate that. But in a case in which, you know, we get to the end of negotiations and this isn't something that the federal government wants to commit to, would the government of Prince Edward Island fund this pilot project? I, I think it would be difficult for us to fund it totally for ourselves. I mean, if you look right now, uh, we probably spend 80 to 90 million dollars sort of in our social uh, bracket our social basket for example so to get immediately to go to 318 or 330 or whatever the number was that's a pretty huge step for us to to do alone uh, but that doesn't mean we can't be doing something here as well so for example uh if, if we're dealing with five to six thousand people with our social envelope uh, you know, we have found and been working with a number of people who are interested in being part of the labor force participation, even on a, uh, on a, on a part-time basis, for example. And we've been working with them through Skills PEI and other funding uh, opportunities to, to, to utilize that. Uh, but we found that uh, we were actually, our programs were designed with a disincentive. So uh, if you, you could make $250 in a month before we start to claw back your money. Uh, so we, we need to change that and we're going to change that. So we're, we're going to change that so you can, uh, you can work and, and be in the labor force on a, on a limited basis uh, or a part-time basis and keep more of your money. So I think that number should be $1,000 at a minimum, for example. Mm -hmm. So I want you to have the incentive to go work if you're willing and able and interested to do so because the labor force needs you. We also have the secure income pilot that we tried to kick off last year, but CERB kind of uh, trumped uh, that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but that's essentially designed for the 
the thousand people who show or maybe on the lowest end of the uh, of the social envelope uh, to take them up to 80 percent of the market basket uh, uh, income. Uh, and, and, and that's an important project and I think could be a, a precursor to working our way through to a basic income at some point. But mm. it all comes down to for me, I mean, these are our, our friends and our neighbors and our, you know, our brothers and sisters. And, and it's incumbent upon us as a government, but it's also who we are as Islanders to do what we can to help those who need it. And, and uh, uh, I'll never stop doing that in here. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's an important file for me where I grew up, the people I grew up with, um, you know, these are my people really, you know, that th this is the the reality that I've only known for, for most of my life. So mm -hmm. if I can use my chair to make their lives a little bit better and to give them a sense of dignity and, 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 uh, and, and make, uh, you know, a better chance for their, for their families, then that's what I'm going to do. Mm. Absolutely. And that's such a good perspective to have. Um, now, you know, we're going to shift gears a little bit now <laughs> and move on to the Residential Tenancy Act which is currently a bill that's open for public consultation. Now, this bill is meant to replace the Rental of Residential Property Act. Um, it had a deadline of March 31st last year for feedback and public consultations. But of course, a pandemic happened and these have been pushed back. So I think uh, consultations are still open. The public can still provide input here. So I was wondering, have you had a chance to look at the feedback so far to see what uh, Islanders are saying about this first draft of the bill? I think we've had close to 200 or maybe even a little bit more than 200 oh, submissions wow. now, either uh, or either like uh, verbally or written or, or through various submissions. I think, you know, obviously that there's a broad uh, spectrum of what those views are, but essentially <laughs> I think it comes down to two. I think you have, uh, uh, you have tenants who are asking for greater protections and rights and recognition of the fact that they're not just monthly rent payers, that this is their home mm -hmm. and our home is so important to us. And we should make sure that there's a respectful uh, recognition of that. Mm -hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, I think you have tenants or landlords, I'm sorry, who are saying, uh, yes, I think we need to do a better job in terms of uh, what we have been doing, but you also need to recognize my rights as well. If somebody is not respecting the property, if somebody isn't paying their rent, I need to find a way from a business case to uh, to be able to remove that person uh, and put somebody else in there who will do that. Uh, and, you know, so I think it's, it's. Uh, I don't think any of the submissions would be terribly surprising uh, to anybody. And I think it's just, uh, you know, it, it's sort of uh, reaffirms why we have gone through this it, it needed to be dealt with it needs to be uh, it needs to be something that we put a priority on because you know more and more islanders are are are, are renters now and and uh and that's something that we have to make sure that the laws or, or the regulations that we have in place are reflective of the reality of today and and i think in many cases they needed to be updated mm -hmm. And I especially appreciate uh, how you began answering that question, Premier, stating that there are diverse opinions when it comes to this. And, 
and definitely some passionate ones at that. And um, that's a good thing, though. I think that that reflects that people care about it. So I I think that's awesome. And um, with that, are there any potential timelines that Islanders can expect that this uh, bill will be presented to the Legislative Assembly? Yeah, it's it's uh, for sure. I think you'll see something this fall. I was just uh, to react or to reflect on something that you just said, Emma, that uh, in the 19 or 20 months that I've been in this chair, I don't know if I found an issue where there haven't been broad island uh, differences in terms of how we view a lot of these issues. And I do, although sometimes it certainly can be frustrating, I do think it's why we, this is the best place to be the premier of, because <laughs> people have an opportunity to share their opinions. I think, I, I feel I've been very approachable and very human in this job. So people feel very comfortable coming up to me and saying, this is my view on this or that. And, and, uh, <laughs> no and I, it was, yeah, it, it, but that to me, I think that is the, probably the, the, the challenge and the difficulty of, of doing a good job in this job is because of that. But I think you know, we're, because of COVID, this has been pushed back, but I think you'll see something uh, presented to the legislative assembly this fall all and uh, after the consultation has been completed and and I hope what we come forward with is something that will thread that very fine eye of the needle of uh, making sure that uh, tenants are respected and protected and that uh, landlords uh, feel that that uh, entering into uh, a business plan to create spaces uh, for example uh, is uh, um, uh, something that's a worthwhile thing to keep going forward with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, you know, you've mentioned there's been kind of a very diverse range of opinions when it comes to this act. It seems that everyone you talk to has an opinion on it nowadays, but one of the (laughs) concerns that has been raised most commonly is the fact that if a new tenant is moving into an apartment or a new house, then they don't necessarily know what the previous tenants uh, paid Mm -hmm. as rent, and if the increases from one person to the next is legal. So Mm -hmm. from that, I think online, we've seen a number of folks kind of raise the importance of having a rental registry where you'd be able to find those numbers and, you know, file any forms that you need to file with IRAC in case the increase was not legal. As of now, the bill does not include um, Mm. any such registry. Is this something that you kind of foresee the government working on or consider adding to the act? Well, I think that, you know, I, I think I, I keep a very open mind to, to, to these things. Uh, I don't, as far as I know, there isn't any province right now that has a registry. I think the regional municipality of Halifax is looking at one. So there might be some uh, opportunities for us to do some sort of best practices and, and do some back and forth on, on what they hope to achieve. I think, you know, probably previous to the last seven or eight years, this probably wasn't as big a concern because if you rented an apartment for $700, if you were a landlord, if somebody left, you were grateful to get somebody to come in at that same level. Uh, but now I think because of the uh, the growth in our population and, and the change of how people are living and where they're living, that it's now probably more of a requirement that uh, it's not perhaps we're not so comfortable just putting our trust in in someone saying that this is this is going for this uh you know i think i walk a fine line as a progressive conservative or <laughs> in pei that a lot of people call me the, the the green premier and i think half of them think that's offensive half of them think that's uh, uh you know uh, a good thing and i haven't i haven't decided on either but uh, you know I, I i i don't want to get in the way of business i i feel business needs to do business and 
that business will mostly find its level. But when it comes to something like this, I want to keep an open mind. I, I, I'm open to be convinced of the need for a registr registry and, and an effectiveness of the registry. Um, so I, I, I think in this session of the legislature, I hope this is something that will be discussed at length. Mm. And like I say, I, I, I keep a very open mind to it. I think if it would help us uh, sort of bridge that gap uh, that exists there, then that's something that we really should look at. And, uh, you know, um, so I, I don't want to sound non-committal, but I, I think if I could be convinced this would be a good thing that, uh, and I, I would get behind it. I think that's the way I've governed. Uh, that's my style of governing in general. That's what I've done to date. And I, I think I would take the same approach uh, to this issue. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and no doubt, I think um, many islanders with diverse opinions will be looking forward to those discussions in the legislature. So uh, definitely appreciated. Yeah. Going to switch gears again a little bit here onto you know a topic that I wouldn't say uh, is uh, <laughs> boilerplate at all, or, or that people have no opinions on. Of course, climate change, everyone has a, has an opinion on, and and is yeah. definitely passionate uh, in one way or another about. I think most certainly. Recently, I'm not sure, Premier, if you've seen photos of Texas recently, mm -hmm. but they just experienced massive amounts of, of snow and power outages and, and heating issues. And anyways, it's been, I think, um, a bit of a reality check as we've been navigating COVID and focusing on that, as we should be um, right. also kind of bringing to I the realities that are, are still existing with climate change. So we're going to switch gears a little bit to that. But sure. of course, uh, in, in 2020, the government of PEI, um, also during COVID, <laughs> uh, invested $1 million into the climate change fund that would support poor creativity and community-led solutions to address climate change. Now, the first deadline for this fund was quite recently, actually, November 30th, 2020, just a couple months ago, and that was for the upcoming 2020-21 funding round. Uh, so just off the top, what's that experience been like? What's the uptake been? Was there a lot of interest, many applications, and what types of projects should we expect that this, uh, this investment will support? Yeah, no, that's it's it's a good question, and I I, I think it's if it isn't boilerplate, uh, I think it, it should be. I think it should remain a key priority for us. You mentioned taxes, but I mean, I also just need to look outside of PEI, and here we are on the nineteenth of February. There's no ice mm -hmm. in the North. Thumberland Strait. I yep. don't know of uh, February in my memory where uh, there hasn't been ice. So I think we see the changing climate all around us. We feel it more in PEI because we're small, mm. because we're an island. So uh, you certainly don't need to convince me that uh, climate change <laughs> is real. Uh, and that's why, I mean, I essentially, in the latest cabinet change, I, I changed the name of the department from climate change to climate action, because I think mm. we've moved past the, the change component or trying to recognize that. And it's, it's time for action. So our, our, our climate challenge fund, was designed to try to get some good innovative ideas from Islanders. I think there have been 30 or 31 applications, which awesome. is pretty impressive. Yeah. Awesome. And I think later this month or very soon we'll be announcing a number of successful, but I mean, uh, you know, just, I asked staff to pull a, a couple of, of ideas and that's not to say these are the ones that have been approved because I haven't <laughs> seen that list yet, but you know, there's been some projects and applications uh, to address the 
inequities around climate change and how it impacts minorities, for example, uh, which is uh, something that, uh, you know, two years ago, we probably never even would have thought needed to be measured. Uh, you know, there's sustainable agriculture projects and how climate change is impacting agriculture and what needs to be done to assist uh, that, that industry. And, and by the same token, there was a project uh, that uh, asked for some funds to to measure the carbon offsets of the muscle and aquaculture sector mm. and PEI. So I mean to me that that's very, very exciting. I think good ideas come from 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 islanders across the board. And I really just wanted to put a fund in place to say, uh, you know, take your good idea, let's see if we can help you. And if by all means the project has some merit to it and you need some more government investment along the way, then we're going to be there to do that. But I think the more maiden PEI solutions we can find to address climate uh, change and climate action, I think that that'll only serve us, uh, you know, well heading forward. Mm, absolutely. And I, I don't know how many people have noticed that there's no ice on the Northumberland Strait this, this month, because not many people are leaving the island these days, but <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> fair point. So true. How true. <laughs> Yeah, you make a very good point there. And I think it will, we're super excited to see what kind of projects come mm. out of the Climate Challenge Fund, because it seems like such a wide range and a wide diversity of projects. Mm. Now, in addition to that, we are currently in year three of five of the PI Climate Change Action Plan. <laughs> and part of it looks at sustainable transportation, focusing on both urban and rural transit. Now, as a faithful user of the Trice Transit myself, I have to ask, <laughs> what is the current uh, project? Progress when it comes to transit on PEI? Well, I think you'll hear a little bit more of this in, in the speech from the throne. And this is the, for, for those who are listening, this is the part of the podcast <laughs> where uh, the premier who loves the dream uh, meets some uh, challenges with the people who need to implement these great ideas. Uh, so for example, uh, you know, we have committed to working with the federal government to, over the course of the next number of years, change our school bus fleet entirely to electric. Mm -hmm. yes. mm -hmm. uh, and we also know that uh, one of the big reasons people keep pointing to us of why they're not willing to locate to more rural reaches of this province are twofold. One is internet and one is because of the lack of public transportation. Mm -hmm. So we'll be starting uh, this uh, September a project to where we will be utilizing school buses when they're not taking our students to school uh, and uh, working with uh, Mike Cassidy and, and the, the T3 group, trying to integrate a rural transit model using our school wow. buses to wow. connect with a big uh, with, with the bigger T3 group across PEI. And, and that will require us to uh, hire full-time school bus drivers, for example, uh, right now, if you know, and I know you both follow this quite closely, it's hard for us to recruit school bus drivers largely because it's a part time job. Yep. So mm -hmm. uh, we will need to put some more focus and, and money and resources into that. But I guess I see in the next number of years as we convert this fleet to electric, the savings we would have with diesel and maintenance and other things we can put into salaries of, uh, of drivers. And we can hopefully, uh, with not too long into the future, have a rural transit plan that's interacted with the current one that we have where Islanders can live in Murray River or they can live in Alberton 
uh, and not have to drive their car everywhere. And as we see with the implementation of a carbon tax and how that will change uh, our, our attitudes, the more opportunities we have to help Islanders change their attitudes, the, 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 the better chance we will get to the destination we need to go. So that's, I'm excited about that. It's, uh, it, it's, it's a big project. It's a big change in thinking. Uh, but I think it's utilizing resources that we have now that are currently underutilized and trying to help us address a bigger challenge, which is how are we going to change how we do things uh, when it comes to our climate? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's so awesome. I'm I'm so excited about that, both, in you know, as Sweta said, as a, as a T3 user, but also... Um, you know, I'm from Morel PEI, mm-hmm. you know, rural PEI, you know, middle of nowhere. I don't think it's nowhere, but, yeah, uh, you know, sure. to be able to think that, you know, a small village such as Morel can connect into uh, cohesive transit options that are also green into other areas that they need to travel to it and maybe not use a car every single day. That's that's phenomenal. So I will definitely be excited to see that <laughs> as well. Sweta. And I think a, a lot of Islanders, not just mm. in, you know, the Charlottetown, Summerside, Stratford, Cornwall areas, but uh, across the island. So that's really exciting. And, and I guess as a follow up to that, where can Islanders continue to follow the progress of not only this initiative, but as well all the initiatives under the action plan? Yeah, I think uh, that's a great question because I think if you're not able to monitor this, sometimes you 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 forget. And if we don't pay enough attention to this, years pass, and we say, "Oh gosh, we didn't uh, we didn't do any of this." Uh, because uh, and and look, that's the last thing I want. I think that the uh, you know the Net Zero Carbon Act that was introduced by Lynn Lund, which we all supported, uh, that cemented uh, sort of the net zero targets that we have for PEI, which are very aggressive, but we're committed to meeting. And it's also made a requirement of government to report each year to the legislature, uh, things like our greenhouse gas use, you know, our carbon emissions and, and where they're at. I think what we do know in that regard is the success we've had in reducing our emissions right now have been the low hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the challenges as, as a province we face now is our uh, transportation, as we just talked about, is our biggest uh, carbon emitter. Agriculture uh, is another. And, and so these are things that we're not going to make as quick of changes with because they require more in-depth uh, and challenging views. But, but this needs to be reported each year to the legislature. And I think the one thing that I like about this is that we do have a legislature where all members, I think, feel very... Uh, open to uh, asking questions. I think it's a different dynamic in the legislature than it's ever been. I think MLAs are better utilized now than they've ever been uh, in terms of their their ideas and their input. And I, I only want that to continue. And uh, so, I, you know, I think you do need these measurements, though. You do need to be able to monitor these things in real time. Uh, and if uh, if government isn't acting quick enough, we need people to continue to push us, but we need to have that responsibility of our own to say, you know what, uh, this isn't good enough. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, I've never been afraid of that and, and nor will I be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's really exciting to know that, you know, these are being presented in the legislative assembly every year and that there's a way for folks to be able to keep up and monitor the action plan. Changing gears yet again and moving on to mental health now. Um, All the easy topics, Premier, yes, just for yes, you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, this, I don't know if there's been a file in government that I've spent more time trying to understand uh, and come to grips with as this mental health and addiction. So it's, it's important that we talk about it. 
Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the projects that the government has been working on has been the Mental Health Emergency Response Line, which is expected to be fully operational by March 2021. This will include a mobile health crisis team, including, um, you know, a mental health official and a police officer who will be dispatched to the location of someone who's deemed to be in distress. And this is the first service of its kind on PEI. Now, Obviously, we know, you know, over the past year, there's been a little bit of concern over wellness checks and having police officers involved in mental health situations. So we were wondering what kind of additional training will be provided to this police officer who will be dispatched to ensure that they're able to have an intersectional safe approach to their work. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this is an issue that has also gotten a lot of attention and rightly so. I think first and foremost, I see it as the job of the premier to to try to develop a system that can deliver the best possible care, uh, you know, to, to those who need it in a, in a timely manner and, and hopefully in your community. So I hope that this, uh, the development of this mobile health team and this line will, will, will allow for that. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I'm probably more mindful than most who have been in this chair to to be careful to not think that we have all the right ideas and that we can't be open to, to good suggestions. So, you know, when you, for, for example, I think in the process of getting to where we're at, I think there's been training for 17 or 18 uh, police officers, and it's been training around uh, how to deal in, in a crisis situation. It's been sensitivity training. It's been, uh, you know, a variety of different things, which I think is a good thing and should be expanded to all of our, you know, first responders in some way, shape or form, because mm. a lot of these times you're going into a situation that you don't know anything about and, and it requires you to, to, to have that uh, diversity of training. But, you know, I, I look at it, uh, uh, you know, the, the mobile mental health team that, that we will put in place and, and begin in March uh, in this line, it, like it, to me, it, it's, I guess it's, it's threefold. The frustration people have with mental health and addictions is getting into the system. So we need to create a single point of access for people so they can get in and be immediately talk to someone and to be triaged to figure out what they need. Mm -hmm. And then once you get in the system, you need to have some assistance to navigate the system. And so that's, I think, once we can get people into the system, there's, there's, a, there's a decent level of adequate service that we provide, and, and that can be helpful. And it's the same thing with, with, our, with, our, with our mobile units here. I think, uh, you know, every, what I'm told, uh, and I've talked extensively to staff, uh, if we get 10 calls in this regard, seven are able to be answered uh, are, are assisted on the phone. Uh, somebody can then direct them to get some community-based service uh, the following day, et cetera. And then what we get into is there's an area where three out of 10, somebody needs some immediate emergency service. Uh, it's determined they're in a mental health crisis of some kind. And it's then when uh, the staff uh, are dis- you know dispatched and the question around police comes down to uh, you know, we certainly don't want to treat them as if they're criminals. We don't want to add to the stigma, but at the same time, we want to make sure that the professionals who are going in to deliver the health services can do so in a safe environment. So if through the process uh, of the triage process, it can be determined that, uh, you know, this is just somebody who has an issue, that they're not a concern, uh, that, you know, there's no handgun involved or anything like that, then we will certainly dispatch the social work and then the health professionals uh, without a police. But, you know, we have to be mindful of the fact 
that our health professionals are going into somebody's home, sometimes in a, in a rural community. Uh, they don't know a lot of what's in there, and their first concern has to be their own uh, health and safety so they can provide the services that they need. So I, I keep an open mind to that. I don't want to see a police car in the, the driveway unless it's, unless it's entirely needed. So I think the system will kick off March 1st. Uh, we'll evaluate it every day uh, because we will need to. Uh, the end result for me is a service that Islanders can access if and when they need it uh, in, in their community uh, and uh, to get them to the level of service they need if it's determined they need it. And uh, uh, it's not perfect and it won't be perfect when it starts, but I hope it's better than what we have in place and I hope we can continue to improve it. And if we can do this without stigmatizing those, the last thing someone in a mental health crisis or situation needs is further stigma. If we can do it without that, we, uh, you know, we certainly will. And we will talk to our staff all the time to make sure they're comfortable uh, to, to deliver the service they need to deliver uh, uh, every day. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and as this is a, is a new program here on PEI, as Sweta said, what do you folks anticipate that'll be the impacts both uh, on Islanders as well as the healthcare system with this new type of program? Well, I, I hope it can bring more Islanders to the healthcare system a little bit more efficiently if and when they need it. I hope it can give Islanders a level of comfort in knowing that service is there for them in a timely manner if and when they need it. Uh, the more we can attach this to a community or a community-based service, the more we can work with the wonderful partners we have, Canadian Mental Health Association, uh, the Peers Alliance, the REACH Foundation, all of these wonderful groups that we have who are really we can't deliver these services effectively without them and we probably need to call on them to do more along the way and I'm quite prepared to do that so I hope it can it can uh, you know overall I think you know my election philosophy was it's about people it really wasn't a slogan it I really I hope it's a, a motto for me it's how I've tried to do this every day and what I've been trying to reaffirm to staff every day and to to everyone who will listen is that when somebody calls, that's that's our sister, it's our brother, it's it's mm. that isn't a transaction, that isn't a line item in a budget. That is an islander who needs help. And it's our job to do everything we can to make sure they're getting that help in a fair and efficient way. And mm -hmm. so uh, I mean our, our look, our system will have to constantly evolve. It, it will need to. We will need to evaluate it. If we're not getting it right, we can't be just stubborn from a bureaucratic perspective and say it's fine we just can't do that i i i, I won't do it uh, i i i haven't done it uh it, you know i'm the first one who stands up if we're not doing it right i don't try to convince you we're doing it right i i'm open-minded mm -hmm. and i i really i want this to serve people i want people to get into our healthcare system more effectively more efficiently faster uh, and that's whether it's mental health and addictions, whether it's primary care or whatever level of care we offer from a health perspective here, uh, we have to make it more about people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's it's a really refreshing perspective as well. I, I know Emma <laughs> probably agrees to, you know, have someone who's willing to say, we know that we don't know everything. We don't have all the answers, but we're willing to learn. I think it's mm. something that's very positive and it's something we always look forward to seeing more of from our elected officials. Now, one of the- Well, here's a, here's a bombshell. I turned 50 this year. Uh, and <laughs> I, I so I've been around politics, either covering it or working in it, or now at the front of it for 30 years. 
And there's nothing that frustrates an Islander more uh, than when they know there's a problem to see the government stand up and say, oh, no, no, there's no problem. You're just seeing it wrong. There's oh, nothing that frustrates anybody more than that. And I really tried hard to uh, to not fall into that trap. Uh, and, and, uh, <laughs> and I won't. I mean, uh, look, I mean, there's lots of good programs that we provide here that we don't do a good enough job explaining what the, what the programs are or how we provide them. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll accept that. But I will never stand up if you know and I know that something isn't working. I'll never stand up here in front of you and say, yes, it is. I wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I think, you know, just on that point, there was one point of criticism towards the government, especially in the early days of COVID, and that was the closing of the Unit 9 psychiatric ward of the QEH from March to November of last year to kind of make room for potential hospitalizations. Now, until everyone who wants to be vaccinated on PEI gets vaccinated, we know there's still a potential of a second wave, you know, to come and overwhelm the healthcare system again. Now, we're just wondering, are there any measures that are being looked at to kind of deal with these potential hospitalizations again, as opposed to closing down unit nine again? Yeah, I think over the course of COVID, I don't mean to, to repeat, but We've learned a lot. I think when, when this sort of landed here in, in March of 2020, we didn't know a lot. Uh, we knew and our chief public health office told us to, you know, essentially brace for impact. I mean, that's uh, we didn't know what to do, but we knew we had to get ready for what could be. Uh, so we really we, we tried to work with our uh, with, with staff uh, and we tried to work with our with our health facilities to uh, to sort of empty them out for the fear of we might need to hospitalize two or 300 islanders here. So while uh, you know health care for those who need it didn't stop, but it, it but like a lot of things in COVID it changed and sometimes it changed dramatically. So I think now knowing what we know, I know we have the designated COVID, uh, you know, area within the hospital. So I think we're better equipped now than we were. We've utilized the last 11 mm -hmm. months to, to, to get ready. So I don't think unless something catastrophic were to happen that we would go back to sort of emptying out the, the units to the extent that we did. Uh, I think we're better prepared now. We know a lot more from that, but uh, um, you know, uh, I think there's a lot of things you'd go back and do if you knew differently. I mean, um, you know, a lot of every Islander was impacted by COVID and our, and our response to it. And, uh, but I think now knowing what we know, I mean, we're kind of bracing for what might be a third wave when you look at the variants that are there and Absolutely. you look at some of the modeling now that's coming from uh, uh, public health Canada, for example. So, uh, you know, COVID hasn't released it, released us from its firm grip here yet, mm -hmm. uh, but I think we've adjusted and, you know, it would be a great time to shout out, that, you know, uh, Dr. Morrison and, and, and Marion Dowling and myself have been the benefactors of people saying what a great job we have done, but that really, that praise and thanks belongs to the thousands of Islanders in our health system and, and those who are providing the services every day that, that maybe we don't know their names, but we should. And so we're, so we're utilizing that expertise, that experience we have to be better equipped. And uh, if something were to happen, uh, you know, as it stands right now, we wouldn't need to do what we did in March, but uh, with COVID, uh, you know, it's, it's, you have to keep getting ready for things you don't know what you need to be ready for. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Well, on that very, I think, serious note, uh, we're, we're going to shift to the, the next part of our podcast. Now, I always joke that this is the, the most serious part, but of course it's not. This is, I think, the opportunity to uh, showcase a number of different local businesses or uh, ideas, recipes. So it is definitely more lighter part and especially in a transition from talking about mental health and COVID. So uh, we ensure that we have time for everything, uh, all things that are critical. Sure. <laughs> um, so this is, as, as dialogue listeners though, the beer panel, uh, we share different things such as local beer or if people would like a recipe or a restaurant or anything that they would like to share and and highlight for islanders if they'd like to try it themselves so premier as you are our special guest we will hand over the floor to you what would you like to recommend today <laughs> well I, i'm a big I, I love beer so i feel like i'm a very good panelist on the beer panel good, good. uh let me just start by saying i, I don't know if i would give you a recipe but uh if you're ever out in hampshire and you want to have the best meat pie in Prince Edward Island. You should stop at Clothes Red and White okay. and pick up uh, one of their meat pies. It, it is, it is, uh, it's an island delicacy that should be shared, you know, should be enjoyed by all Islanders. So shout out to Norman and, and, and the crew at, at, at Clothes because uh, it, it, it is the best. And I know that's, that's, those are brave words to, to, <laughs> to speak, but, but, it, but it is the best. Uh, in terms of beer, I'm a big fan of the Yankee Gale of, of Lone Oak. I, I mm. like that a lot. I do enjoy that, but I'd be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to my buddy Dave at Bogside and his <laughs> uh, and his Georgetown beer, right? My home, uh, my home birthplace. Uh, he has a Georgetown brew that is a, a really good brew, and every time I'm at Bogside, I feel uh, happily obligated to drink a Georgetown beer. And uh, so, uh, but you know what? We do have we have amazing uh, craft breweries here in PEI, and. Uh, I, I enjoy them all. I really do. I'm not just saying that because I'm trying to be diplomatic. Uh, <laughs> I, I used to be a only a drinker of Keith's. That was my beer. And now I find myself uh, drinking. Uh, if I go into the, the liquor store, for example, or I go to a bar, I, I pick up uh, some of the craft beer here in PEI. I really, really enjoy it. And uh, I think uh, my, my palate has changed as I've aged, perhaps. <laughs> I was just saying that's probably inevitable once you're on PEI and you get to see how many craft beers there are. I think <laughs> looking back on just since I moved here, I didn't used to drink beer before I moved here. So yeah. that was new. I was more <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. And then there are all such great little taverns and locations that they have. Uh, my other favorite, I love going to the Copper Bottom Brewery because... Yes. When you go in, when you go into the washroom at the Copper Bottom Brewery, I used to work at the Eastern Graphic, and that was the the, the Copper Bottom is the renovated graphic office, and it's a great opportunity for me to go in and have a pee on Paul McNeil's desk when I go, I go to uh, <laughs> the Copper Bottom. So uh, uh, it's uh, but a uh, great location, and uh, it's uh, it was fun to be here. I, I, I uh, you can. Put that last part out if you think it's uh, 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 something I shouldn't say. But, uh. No, no, I, I think honestly that'll be the headline. Uh, Premier peas on Paul McNeil's desk. Uh, well, he's. <laughs> Well, right on. Yes. We appreciate well, the honesty, though. That's that's the well, fun part. Uh, that's the, the best part of these interviews is we get to demonstrate to Islanders all these interesting people and in that they're just 
they're humans like everyone mm. so uh yeah. definitely appreciated um so i'm also i was anticipating a a montague recommendation now i didn't know if you were gonna go with bogside or if you're gonna go with copper bottom <laughs> premier but you did both so um, <laughs> that's good though yeah, i mean yeah. montague is so lucky um i i visit there quite often love the lucky bean cafe and then mm. typically walk my way to either copper bottom or or bogside wherever we can get in as both of them are always packed uh, on, on the weekends and so i was there uh, two weeks ago or no i guess it was last week uh tried to get into copper bottom it was packed to the rim so that's okay went down to bogside which is just as good love both and i'm gonna recommend their champagne ipa it's definitely oh, yeah. a, a fun kind of summery beer it's a gorgeous uh, can as well it's actually a, a photo of kind of like a a sunrise during i think mm. the fishing season it's got a, a fishing fleet on it which is great um anyways it's a pretty can and it's a great beer to it and bogside has a great atmosphere so I, i'll also recommend bogside perfect perfect <laughs> yeah i feel like i have to stick with the bogside theme now i haven't uh -oh. been in east for a while but i do know that bogside does sell their beers at the farmer's market here in charlottetown mm. which is really cool so it's right next opposite for s catering so where you can buy the indian food and i recently tried the tropical storm from there which is really good um mm -hmm. it's really hoppy it's really citrusy and i don't know it's everything pi nice. it's really good i really like yeah. it <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much, Premier. We're so thankful. You, you dedicated an entire hour with us oh, and, wow. and we were chatting with our friends earlier this week in Alberta and, and we were saying, you know, we have, uh, you know, the Premier coming on this week and they said, you know, the Premier, he agreed to be <laughs> on your show. And we said, yes, we're very lucky on PEI to have such, I think, strong relationships with mm. uh, many of the elected officials and, and as well, um, you know, senior people in government and folks like this that are, we're able to learn from, to discuss with, and, and really be able mm. to showcase all the great work that's being done for Islanders. So um, we're very, very appreciative of your time today. Well, it was a great honor for me to be asked, and I enjoyed it very much, and keep up the great work. Uh, you guys are doing great work, and uh, I'll, I'll continue to uh, tune in in the weeks ahead. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. Thank, Thank you, you Premier. Yeah. Best of luck in the opening of the ledge. Thank you. Right. <laughs> See you later. See you. Bye. And that's all the time that we have today, folks. Thanks again to Premier King for sitting down with us and chatting for the past hour on these various policy priorities, as well as sharing with us his local secrets of beer. As always, our music is Gaspé Z by the incredible Shane Pendergast. Shane has an upcoming show with our good friend Josh Langell at Evermore Brewery, and that is Wednesday, February 24th, 2021, from 7 to 9 p.m. That's a newer brewery that's opened up in the last couple years, and that is in Summerside, Prince Edward Island. So check that show out. They're both very talented and great that they're playing together. Next show he has coming up after that is at PEI Brewing Company, which is, of course, here in Charlottetown on Kensington Road. That's February 26th, 2021, 6 to 9 p.m., a following show after that is at the Beer Garden, of course on Hunter's Corner right here in Charlottetown, Saturday, February 27th, 2021 from 3 to 5 p.m. And that's it for February, but Shane also has three shows coming up in March. The first one is the 2021 Credit Union Music PI Week presents Digging Deep Roots. 
that's on Friday, March 5th, and it's going to be from 7.30 to 9.30 p.m. It's going to be at the Guild in downtown Charlottetown, and the tickets are available on the Guild's website. The next show is a very exciting one. It's the launch of his new album called Second Wind at the Trailside Music Hall. This is on Thursday, March 11th, 2021. It's from 8 to 10 p.m., and the tickets are available on ticket on Eventbrite. Finally, Shane will be at the Merchantman Pub on Friday, March 12th, 2021, from 6 to 9 p.m. Shane also just released a new single that folks can expect on his upcoming album called Second Wind, and the single is titled Autumn Rain, and this is with graphics also from local artist Brandon Hood. You can find this song on Spotify, Apple Music, and many other streaming platforms included on Shane's website, shanependergast.com. Additionally, if you haven't checked it out already, for sure check out the additional second single from Shane's new album, It Slips Away, which is also on the second album launch. And again, that's March 11th. Stay warm and stay safe, everyone. This has been Dialogue.